This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Friday the 13th. Jason Kelly and Shanali Vasek here in New York City. Well, let's talk a little bit of trade because as we've been mentioning and as you heard Charlie mention and just about everyone else on Bloomberg <laughs> Networks today, it's been the dominant story. Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. And Clayton Allen, Vice President of Special Situations at Height Capital Markets on the phone in Washington, D.C. Sarah, I want to start with you. So just lay it out for us. What did we hear? What do we know at this point after all the back and forth and the tweets and the comments and the denials and the speculation? What do we know? Of, of what we know, what did the U.S. win? What did China uh, concede? Uh, the U.S. has uh, won a commitment from China to buy more U.S. farming goods. Those, of course, sort of bo- hit rock bottom during the trade war. Farmers were hit. They're politically important to Trump, especially going into this next election. So 40 to $50 billion a year of agriculture purchases have been promised by China from U.S. farmers. Um, and we're hearing from the U.S. that that is an increase over 2017 levels before this trade war started. From China, they've actually come out quite well. As they've you know met their number one demand, which is no tariffs on Sunday on these $160 billion of consumer goods that were supposed to hit, and a slight rollback in the tariff rate for, for some of the tariffs, existing ones in place. So both sides have something to sell to their constituents. Clayton, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us how you think that this is going to impact markets. How do people play their investments given the phase one deal? Sure. So I think the the first thing to note is that people's expectations heading into this week were all pretty uniform. I think the delay of December 15th tariffs or cancellation December 15th tariffs, however you want to phrase that, was a really consensus view. The unknown factor was any impact on tariffs beyond that. The president indicated today that he'd be re- that we'd be reducing uh, some other tariffs, specifically saying that other tariffs would be at seven and a half percent. I think reading through that, you can take that to mean that some of the tariffs imposed in September at 15% would be reduced, and that's really what drove a lot of the positive movement yesterday. I think from today on, though, uh, there's a lot of skepticism and uncertainty. Those ag numbers, the 40 to $50 billion number, seems actually a little bit unreasonable or unattainable when you look at where ag exports were prior to the trade war and what the high point has been. And I think that's leading a lot of investors to wonder, are we actually going to be able to follow through on a lot of the promises that have been made? And so, Sarah, come on back in here. Clayton raises some really good points about the fine points of this and and whether this is actually, to use a very technical term, doable. <laughs> what what do you make of that, especially given the political and maybe less economic, but more market importance of this deal getting done? 
Absolutely. And I think what Clayton brings up is just the enforceability of the agreement. And the Trump administration has been very critical of previous administrations uh, because, you know, they said any commitment they ever received from China in any sort of trade form, you know, China would just uh, say one thing and then not fulfill that promise or not follow follow up as quickly as they said they would do. And the Trump administration was going to be different. And so I think the risk maybe with this agreement, there's a, there is an enforcement mechanism. We're hearing that from the U.S. side. We don't have a lot of details on it yet. But you can believe, given that it's Donald Trump and his love of tariffs, that the threat of tariffs will remain out there. And if China doesn't live up to its commitments, um, you know, that idea, at least, that Trump could reimpose tariffs, he could escalate the situation again, will be at the forefront of everyone's minds. And the agriculture purchases could be a clear example if it's an unattainable number. That said, going into the 2020 elections, this, you know, we're hearing from analysts, this is a deal that could potentially at least hold up through the elections, um, considering it probably won't be implemented until the end of January. And so it gives Trump something to campaign on in the meantime. You've both outlined a fair bit of uncertainty here, a lot of skepticism. The markets are relatively calm given today's news. Clayton, can you tell us a little bit about when you think that skepticism is going to start sinking into markets and what this means into next week and through the end of the year? Sure. So I think that with everyone is, is kind of treating this as a little bit of an unknown, kind of a, a Schrodinger's cat sort of situation until we actually get the deal signed at some point in January. We don't have a specific date for that. And I think what we've seen today is probably going to be indicative of how markets and the U.S. and Chinese side treat this deal until we get to that point. There's not been a tremendous amount of kind of a chest beating on the U.S. side or confirmation really uh, from the Chinese beyond the press conference this morning, and I think both sides are going to try and let things sit until we have details publicly available. Uh, the point that was raised about an enforcement mechanism I think is really key here, and that's where a lot of this uncertainty is going to come back in. The details of this agreement probably will include a rollback of some of the tariffs that have previously been imposed, and that's an important distinction to make because under the federal law that allowed these tariffs to be put into place, Rolling the amount down is something that can be done almost at will. It's like a volume knob. Eliminating them completely is a more forceful and kind of final action. So if we're just rolling tariffs back, then investors will immediately flash to, you can turn them back up right. just as easily as you turn them down. Right. Really interesting point. Uh, Sarah, before we let you guys go, about 40 seconds here. There are other trade uh, potential deals out there, maybe tensions, you might even say, or deals that haven't got quite gotten there, USMCA, and now we're talking UK. What's on the horizon near term? Absolutely. Well, Trump said today he's immediately going to get started with the phase two deal with China, which is supposed to tackle those really tough economic reforms that it's hard to imagine uh, China is going to agree to, things like eliminating state subsidies. So, you know, what that means, we'll have to see. What Will they immediately start it and how big of a deal will it be compared to the phase one? Uh, like you said, the UK will be um, pretty hungry, I think, for, for a deal with the US. They've been trying to set off those talks in, in earnest. So I think that might accelerate forward. And USMCA, we're expecting a vote in the House potentially next week. So I think, you know, it's been a big trade week right. here. And we'll see whether that can get through. It looks like it might, but you just never know. You'd never know. That is true. And that's why we always turn to you, Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. And Clayton Allen, grateful to you as well. Vice President of Special Situations for Height Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from D.C. I can see 
All right, so everything's cleared up, apparently, Shanali Basik, because UK people voted and, you know, nothing to see here. Let's just move along. Maybe not so fast. Maybe not so fast. John Authors, senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, also Bloomberg Opinion Comms, is here. He has been following this very closely, to say the least. John, great to have you. Uh, So what happens next? What happens next is Britain leaves the European Union at the end of next month. I don't there's really, you know, to all intents and purposes, no doubt about that one. Uh, after that, there's plenty of doubt. Uh, I have enjoyed my last year or so uh, as a British political pundit. British <laughs> political pundits have been greatly in, uh, in uh, demand among uh, American markets type people for the last year or so. I suspect... I'm going to have to get back to my day job of uh, writing about markets quite a bit more. There, there is an awful lot more uh, that does matter greatly if you're British and about the trade relationship, which will have some market impacts. But in terms of the really big binary macro risks that Britain has been presenting for the last few years, those genuinely do recede quite significantly now. There was a very interesting view I picked up on Wall Street this week uh, down at UBS, at UBS Mm. O'Connor. What they believed is the U.S. markets next year, especially with the uncertainty in the U.S. elections, Mm. that European equities would get more exciting. But you have some opinions here that seem to complicate that view. Well, complicated. I I, I don't think it's a bad, bad guess. That being said, it's an argument I've made quite a few times over the last few years. I think I have a chart in my latest newsletter that uh, MSCI's uh, index for the rest of the world, excluding the US, has underperformed the US by 60% now since uh, since the top of the market in 07. That's pretty drastic. You really would think there'd be some reversion at some point. Um, in terms of the EU uh, uh, in particular, uh, there really are signs that it should be reaching the bottom of what's a very nasty manufacturing slump. Germany is, to some extent, uh, part of the uh, the whole imbroglio over US-China trade. It exports a lot. Um, but that is important if the Brexit deal can be done relatively smoothly. That is another risk for the uh, EU, which uh, minimises. The other critical point, though, is that if there is less perceived risk around Brexit, around the EU and around China, there is less need for a safe haven and the dollar has been functioning as a safe haven. So that more or less by default means that the US begins to underperform the rest of the world to some extent. And John, I want to ask you, you know, and I know this is of interest to both Shanali and myself, Mm. just the mechanics of how the British sort of financial industry, as it were, works now. I mean, now that's, yes, now that's the big potential question which will keep uh, mainstream Bloomberg clients in the US interested in what I have to say. Back back on election night, on sorry, on referendum night in June 2016, there were still plenty of people who thought that uh, that the City of London would maintain what's known as passporting rights, that that you could uh, have a bank that's physically in London but could behave as though it was, uh, to all intents and purposes, as as though it was uh, in the EU. That very quickly became apparent wasn't going to happen. Um, We are now at the point where um, the city is in the south and uh, in London where lots of people didn't vote Conservative and Boris Johnson owes his victory to um, a big swathe of people in the north of the country. Uh, The city of London is Britain's greatest export by more or less any sensible measure and the euro 
the rest of the year the EU is, has very little incentive to be nice right. to the city of London we we the British through the city of London took a lot of business which might naturally have been expected to go to Frankfurt or Paris or Amsterdam or Dublin so the chances are quite strong at this point given that the politics points to a Johnson government protecting farmers, fisheries, and the auto industry, all of which are outside the London, London and the South East, but all of which are less valuable in aggregate to the UK than the city. The chances are quite high that London's competitive standing as a financial centre is going to get quite badly hurt by the deal that gets thrashed out, and that could have real big personal physical repercussions for lots of Bloomberg lights. Yeah, well, just to drill down yeah. on that point a little more, where do mm. the jobs go? Do they go to Frankfurt? Do they go to Paris? How successful will those cities yeah. be in Only capturing? about 30 seconds. Okay, well, well sure. I remember talking to people the first couple of weeks after the uh, referendum and lots of lots of people were cock-a-hoop because they thought they were going to live in Paris on uh, yeah. packages. Uh, the inside gossip is that there's a lot of banks have been buying up uh, uh, office space in Amsterdam. Hmm. Has Schiphol Airport? Every person in Holland speaks English as well as anybody in right. America or, or the UK. Dublin, yeah, also does well. Yeah, conceivably interesting. Yeah, Frankfurt, I think, was everyone's big fear. Yes, <laughs> exactly. All right, let's not deny it. That's right. Big fear. John Authors, always great to catch up with you. Senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, and as he said, of late, a political pundit of sorts. We'll be looking forward to his musings in 2020. All right, so, Shanali, it is a term familiar to many on Wall Street, many of our listeners, people who work in companies, many investors, but what does it actually mean? EBITDA is what we're talking about. Davide Shiliutza is here with us, corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg, alongside Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. This is our Business Week explainer in this week's weekend show. Davide, great to see you. Great to see you too. Thanks All right, for having me. and and we should point out, longtime listener, first time guest. Always good to have you uh, <laughs> here in the studio. So tell us uh, why you decided to take on EBITDA here. So this is an issue that a lot of people, as you said, in the market and on Wall Street have been talking about for a long time, but we thought it was a good opportunity to take a step back and sort of look at it in the macro picture and like how big of a problem this could potentially be. And the issue really is not so much about using EBITDA as a metric, as a substitute for like earnings for companies to measure their performance, but it is about the adjustments that companies make to that metric, especially when they borrow money. What kind of adjustments are we talking about? <laughs> We've seen um, many different kinds. Uh, and as we point out in the story, some companies take 10 words to define what their EBITDA is. Some companies take up to 3,000 words to do that. Um, that a is a wide range. There's 10 on the short side, 3,000 on the upper end. What are they, what's, how are they gaming this? It's about, it's about the adjustments. It's about the, so you start with the EBITDA number that's taken from your you know, income statement and financials. And then it's what you back out of that figure. And you can add all sorts of adjustments. Usually they're related to cost savings that you expect to achieve in the future, synergies that you expect to achieve in the future if it's a business combination, and, and things like that. There's an amazing stat in the story. And by doing this, they inflated their EBITDA, which is essentially supposed to just say how much they're making. 
your profit. By and, and just to get the definition of EBITDA in there, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Now, keep going. Yeah. We just have will, to get that get token insert those are specific of definition. Those are specific things that you just mentioned that yep. should be that have numbers. removed, right? Yep. That have numbers. So by changing different things, they have inflated their profits by an average of 43%. Yes, that was in the first quarter of, of this year. And you're a credit reporter by nature, right? And so a lot of people on Wall Street, the reason they're worried about this is because it can worsen the next crisis. It, it definitely... Uh, creates a lot of uncertainty because there is no consistency, no standards. So when people and credit investors look at a company, they're like, well, what am I really looking at? Do I believe this number or do I have to redo all the calculations myself before I make a credit decision? And not everybody on Wall Street is an accountant. Well, you know, some some firms are bigger than others and have more resources than others. Um, right. Well, and one of the interesting things, and, and Chanali was alluding to this uh, right when you came into the studio, she and I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about private equity. I mean, the, the junk bond world has been the rocket fuel for LBOs now for Absolutely. 30 years, right? So this plays into, and Joel and I have spent many hours talking about sort of private equity's outsized role uh, in the economy. This plays into that as well. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about leverage loans and junk bonds, which are the preferred source of financing for private equity deals. Um, and so definitely that's that's a that's a big uh, driver behind this all. There was WeWork this year, remember, that it was using community yes. adjusted <laughs> EBITDA. It does, are these methods finally are these methods finally coming under scrutiny by regulators and investors? That I mean, obviously, that was a big WeWork got a lot of heat flop. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and they've actually discontinued using that particular metric. They use a different one, which is slightly different, a little bit more conservative in how they calculate it. But definitely when they came out with that, and it was at the time of their first junk bond issue last year, um, they definitely got a lot of attention. Which gets to this thing that inspired this story in the first place, which was this conversation that we started to have, oh, it seems like ages ago, we had a lot of Chinese food and talked about it over lunch, about <laughs> bubbles. Yeah. And things were feeling a little bubblicious over the summer. And that's where this kind of came from. And it's funny because, as we've also talked about recently on this show, the mood, overall mood sort of change you know yeah. and the clouds opened up and everything got right and yet these numbers 43 percent you threw out there that's high especially when you look at the going back to 2015 is yes. when we can compare this to highest of any quarter right yes it's the, it's the highest of any quarter since 2015 which is when the firm we use for this data covenant review um started collecting the the data itself uh, it's come down a little bit since then, but mm -hmm. I think we're still in the sort of higher, on the higher side of that. Hot, right? And if you go back even, like, let's go back a decade, right? 2010s, the term that was used a lot around stuff just like this was, quote unquote, liar loans. So put those two things together for us. What does that mean now? I mean, it, it's really uh, tricky to... To, because you have to really take on a case-by-case -case basis and delve into what each company is doing. Uh, but the idea is Hence that... Hence why there's 10 words or 3,000 words. Exactly. <laughs> the idea is that at the time you're taking a loan, you can sell a story into the future as opposed to a view into the past. And, and that's what really, I think, a lot of credit investors, especially if you think about how long this credit cycle has been, that's the issue that they have. What I don't understand here is why is this not considered lying? I mean, it's not a gap metric. So it's not a metric that is 
that companies are reporting to the SEC or that it is, you know, in their audited financials. You're essentially it's, not breaking a rule because there is no rule. Exactly. Right? It's like you can it's it's like a way for them to give people a view of what the company could look like. Right. If a lot of assumptions that they have play out as expected. Yeah, because the cynical view of this, I mean, I remember sort of coming up as a cub reporter and a cynical <laughs> editor saying EBITDA is earnings before all the things you have to pay for. You know, like, I mean, and sort of this very sort of world-weary view that people are going to do this. And I remember when the private equity firms, speaking of private equity, went public uh, back in 2007, they came up with this whole concept of economic net income, which was sort of a way for them to show profitability without having really profits. Speaking of bubbles, and you know, me and David do a lot of meetings together. If you walk into the banks these days, I think something that's interesting is that there are a lot of banks that are now saying they don't want to underwrite these loans yeah. with these fluffy metrics. So a lot of these banks are saying, you know what, I don't need to be the number so one let's underwriter. Let's go there for a second. Worst case scenario, what does all this stack up to? So in terms of the banks, I think actually their exposure is quite limited, meaning that these days, you know, they're not storing any of this stuff. They're just like moving it on to the investors. So their uh, assessment is usually based on what they think the market will buy. Right. But to the extent that, that credit investors start being more nervous, you can expect them to become more conservative as well. And then the other big question is like, what happens to all the stuff that is outstanding? And... Here the question is, well, are we going to have a recession? If so, what's the impact you're going to see to company and earnings? Who's, and who's essentially left holding the bag exactly. at the end of the well, day? Well, unfortunately, these are a lot of big, safe investors like pension funds and insurance companies. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, really good to dig into this with all of you. Uh, Davide Shiliutza, he is corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. wind up 2019 and we get closer and closer to doing so we look ahead to 2020 we want to understand what's going on in the world of venture capital we just came off a conversation shanali with our local audience about the vc world as it relates to fintech let's broaden it out a little bit jeff graybo back with us u.s venture capital leader over at Ernst & Young, EY, we like to call it, based out in San Jose, California, the heart of it all here with us in New York City. Great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right. So you wore a tie for the occasion because you're in New York. You never do that in Silicon Valley. I'm just going to say it. You don't have to wear exactly. a tie for us. Uh, as you look back on the year briefly, what sort of year was it for venture capital? Well, it's, it turned into a, it's turning out to be another very, very strong year. I mean, we're having our second $100 billion year in succession. So uh, we've never seen $100 billion go out in a year before 2018, and now we're seeing another $100 billion go out. So very strong, not gonna hit what we saw in 2018. Uh, and that's primarily because we haven't seen the size and depth of the mega financings, $100 million rounds. You know, they haven't been as many, right. but also they haven't, you know, we saw several multi-billion dollar financings in 2018 that we haven't seen in 2019. How do they put all this money to work and how do they find a return at these levels? Well, um, so part of the momentum that we're seeing right now is, you know, there is another forecast for winter, you know, for winter is coming. And so there is, we, which we'd see, we've heard a couple times over the past three to five years, but that is out again. And so that's driving some of the near term 
uh, financing activity that we're seeing is people, especially in the consumer space. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to get caught out raising in a, if the economy turns and you have consumer exposure. And so, cause the rule of venture capital is you raise it when it's available, not right. when you need it. Right. You raise it when it's available, but what if there's too much available? You know I mean? What if you have, uh, and I think this may be what you're getting at, Chanali, or part of what you're getting at this notion of institutional investors, you know, pensions, endowments, whoever, family offices, even just starving for yield, they see the potential in venture capital. Do you worry about sort of too much money being out there? I think that's something that, you know, we've talked about in the past yeah. about potentially being in a cash bubble. And if you look at, so this decade, we're going to end up with about $720 billion being raised. So as the decade closes, we're going to look back on this and see is this is the greatest decade ever in history to raise venture capital by entrepreneurs. That's up from about 390 billion in the prior decade. Wow. And so I would kind of argue that that's been the, the cost of transfer of cash and seek of yield because, and staying private longer because, and there's always this debate and I'm of the mind that I think companies are staying private longer or have stayed private longer because private capital has been so available. Yeah. I think if, you know, and I think that's gonna change in the next decade to where we start to see companies start to think about, you know what, should I really be raising $500 million before I go public just because it's there? Right. Um, because one of the- My series I, Q. <laughs> well, because one of, the, one of the things it does is, and you, you, this argument happens, you know, venture capitalists talk about, and investors talking about having companies, you know, they're started in tough times, they've got better DNA, they've got, you know, right. you, know you, you just have a better ethos about how you use capital. But what's the alternative here? Are all of these companies just gonna go, try to go public? Are the public markets going to be receptive to most of these companies that are out there, especially with valuations having risen so much already? Well, I think that's the challenge and that's what you're gonna see because at a certain point in time, if you're worth several billion dollars, who can afford to buy you? Right. And how many of those companies can you buy so what if is you're a public game? company? So I think that pushes them more into a, th a thought of, okay, being, being public or, you know, I've heard of a few things where, you know, potentially you might raise a SPAC. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And have, and then start to think about rolling up some things that are so, either public or private. So getting to uh, Shanali's question on valuations from another perspective, you wonder does 2020 or 21 become a year of maybe some down rounds? Valuations coming down a little bit. Always a possibility. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are some companies out there that have raised in advance of where they are and their metrics because of the enthusiasm that's yeah. in the, and the desire to get in. And because, the availability of money. Yeah. And so that's a possibility. And the question is, is you know, how quickly can you put that money to work and grow and hit the metrics to realize the valuation. One of my favorite things to follow these days also is how much big money is floating into the valley. So non-traditional, Code 2, Tiger Global, KKR raising growth equity, um, bigger funds, Blackstone also raising money. Can traditional Wall Street flood into the valley, you think, or do you think they'll hit some challenges as they do it? Well, I think it's, you, you gotta be concerned about, you know, how much money does it really take getting back to the equation of, okay, where, where does the money go to and how much at what write-up is that? Because, you know, right now, we've talked about this before, though, the asset class has immense overhang. There's over 18,000 venture-backed startups 
in the United States that have raised over half a trillion dollars at book value. Wow. That's tripled in 14 years. Essentially, a venture generation, the asset class has tripled. I think that's another um, sign of what's gone on yeah. from the you know no yield, you know, long-term interest rate, no, no interest yeah. rate, no yield. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, slice of the market, as you can tell. Shanali and I both have a lot of interest, a lot of questions about it. Always good to have you here. Jeff Grabo, U.S. Venture Capital Leader for Ernst & Young, EY, based out in San Jose, here with us in New York City. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Kevin Miller back with us, CEO of Evaluator Funds, based out in chilly Minneapolis, here with us in slightly less chilly, but still kind of cold, uh, New York City here on a Friday afternoon. Great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me back. All right, so you came into the studio, we took a look at the market together, and it is up, kind of. I mean, it's fractionally up, essentially flat for the day on a day when there was a lot of news flow. What do you make of that? Well, I think a lot of the the lift from the potential of a, uh, an agreement has already been kind of uh, baked into the cake, so to say, and through November, and there's a lot of anticipation. And I think it's really kind of a good thing that we're not seeing a huge swing one way or the other. Uh, I think we're waiting to see what the uh, what the elements of the agreement are. And I hope that what this does is give us strong legs to carry us forward for another 18 months as opposed to 18 hours, okay? You still believe the market's going to um, be in a pretty good place next year, slightly up. Let's talk about some of your picks inside of that. Yeah. Uh, Disney, I see, is one of your top picks into next year. Yes. What's behind your thesis here, and what else do you think is going to perform? Well, I, I think we're going to see some rotation in the streaming services. It's becoming more of a crowded field. Uh, I would back away from Netflix. I mean, they were the pioneers. I would say that they uh, laid out the interstate highway. The problem is, is they really don't have the high quality cars to drive on it, which mm. would be the content where Disney has the vehicles. Now they're going to hitchhike on that highway and, and they've got so much content to bring to the marketplace that between young viewers, viewers of mid age and, and then, you know, my age, which is older, um, <laughs> I, I just see that as being a real potential for them. I thought it was quite strange that every adult man I know loves baby Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it yeah. really uh, caught on in a big way. Yeah, have you been surprised or were you surprised at the the uptake for Disney Plus? Yes, absolutely. And 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 again, I think that's content driven. Yeah. You know, they're about ready to release their new movie and I think this last year they had five one billion dollar films Amazing. and next year they're expecting to have ten one billion dollar films, plus they have the the, the parks. I mean, they're so diversified that um, if I was investing in a streaming related 
uh, stock, I would probably back away from Netflix. In yeah. fact, if I don't have a position, I probably wouldn't take a position in Netflix today. I'd probably take a position in Disney for that reason. Talk to us about Boeing because that's Boeing. obviously a name that people have been watching very closely over the course of the year. 2020 feels like a seminal year in many ways. You like it. Why? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if it depends on how far you're looking out. Um, I would look out at least a year for Boeing. Uh, what I would do is I would identify how much you would like to invest in Boeing, and I would invest a third of it right now. Hmm. Okay, then I'd keep an eye on it, and I would invest another third within the next three months. We anticipate the 737 will be back uh, maybe in February, March. Uh, if we see a pullback, then I'd deploy the other third. And then uh, six months from now, I'd be fully in for what my position would be. Uh, because I do believe that they're going to recover from this. The litigation, that will get settled. It's going to be three to four or five years down the road. We'll be driving down, listening to Bloomberg Radio, and they'll say Boeing settled. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot that happened. You right. know? And, um, well, hopefully you don't forget it. But, I mean, you, you, you look back and... Time will, uh, it, it'll take care of itself from that perspective. They have a backlog of planes to be built. Um, they're, we're moving more money into aerospace. Uh, Boeing's going to be a player there. They're a player in defense. So I just see them having the ability to overcome this over the next 12 months. Another one of the stocks you've picked here is currently the third worst performer in the Dow right now, 3M. What's behind that? I think 3M, Caterpillar, I think with the China agreement, you're going to see the transition uh, from them lagging to performing, you know, reversion to the mean, so to say. They've been a good stock, good dividend payer, uh, good free cash flow. Uh, so I think those stocks had been touched in a negative way as a result of the uncertainty around the China trade agreement, um, not knowing exactly what the agreement is and not having it inked yet. Uh, but in the anticipation that that comes to fruition, I think that stock would do very well. Everybody's got a take on Tesla. You're a bear. Tell us why. Well, the reason I, I think Tesla is a, a very good marketing company. They're first to you know, the market with the electric car. Uh, you're seeing everyone else transition into that. I mean, GM is going to have theirs. Ford will have theirs. Volvo, everyone is coming out with their uh, and and. You know, there are certain people there, they're very loyal to their brands. And as those uh, larger companies, higher volume productivity, get to bring that to the marketplace, again, it's kind of like a Netflix. It's going to get crowded. Yeah. And I just don't know if they have the margins with the cost that they have built into their product line to be able to sustain that competition. Not in your list right now or any of the FANG stocks, anything super high growth. Uh, are you kind of negative on that sentiment right now? Uh, are there things to be worried about in terms of technology and growth sectors? No. Technology, I think you always have to stay in technology. I mean, we're it, it's just going to keep renewing on itself. I mean, competition just breeds that growth. Um, Apple, we own Apple, we like Apple, um, you know, talk about fangs. Facebook, I'm a little middle of the road on that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, they're just, I, I could see there being some fallout from Facebook, but tech in general, uh, we like healthcare. Uh, we think is going to be uh, a growth area for Even a with the political risk. With a sustainable period of time, because, you know, you incur the vast majority of your healthcare expenses the last six months of your life. We have the largest generation to go through our economy is retiring at 10,000 baby boomers retiring every day. So those people are going to be incurring more of those services um, in the not too distant future. So I, I and then the technology helps elevate um, the services that we're going to be using through that uh, vehicle as well. So 
I like healthcare as well. So, Kevin, how do you think about political risk going into a presidential election year, also at a time where impeachment is likely to pass uh, next week? And at the same time, you have, we just uh, put out a headline, the White House sending uh, the USMCA to Congress, sort of a marked up version, a, a version they can vote on. We have this potential trade deal. Politics, how do you model it? Well, I have to be very careful how I answer that because I understand there's a presidential candidate that uh, resembles the name of the radio that I'm sitting in, so I don't want to speaking. He's speaking of Michael Bloomberg, the uh, Uh. uh, founder and majority owner who is uh, seeking the Democratic nomination. Go on. So, but and and I wouldn't put him in this in this uh, slot him in this area. But from my perspective, it's going to be a horse race if. The Democratic candidate is a socialist, mm-hmm. not talking liberal or what, just if they're so, if they believe in socialism and if the other candidate is a capitalist, if a socialist would win the presidential candidacy, um, I, I think you'd see a significant pullback in the market. Right. And so what do you do? You know, here it is, October 15th. You know, let's say the polls have everybody neck and neck and it is a socialist against a capitalist. Uh, you know, you're going to retire in 2021. Right. What do you do? So you have to put a little, keep some of your powder dry. All right. Kevin Miller, CEO of Evaluator Funds, based in Minneapolis, here with us in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.